Hello, everybody. It's Charlie. This is the podcast to hell and back. And uh, we're going to uh, be focusing on a topic today with a guest. I'll introduce her in a second. Let me try to think of how to tell you why we're doing this podcast. Um, in my clinical work over the years, uh, I've only gradually realized how many people I've treated that would be considered to be autistic or to uh, uh, be in, in some other ways. You know, I've certainly worked with people with ADHD. I've worked with people with, with significant learning disabilities and other ways of not being neurotypical. But, um, but uh, I was realizing more recently, based on a couple of examples in my practice, that people who are autistic are even to pretty savvy clinicians, invisible. In many cases, you just don't even know like what their experience is because they've gotten so good at acting like their experience is like the experience of everybody else, including you, including me. And, and therefore you don't realize you're actually talking to somebody who's sort of uh, coming from a different place, whose brain works in a different way, who uh, communicates in a different way, who thinks and feels in a different way. And you don't even know it until you start actually hearing about it. And then you say, oh my God, um, this one person, this one uh, teenage boy I worked with, who I learned in a course of a complicated family session that he only thinks in movies. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, yeah. how do you do that? And then I had a conversation with him. I said, how do you think in movies? And he gave me a whole complicated example of how I would have thought quite verbally, but he translates everything automatically. It's the way his brain works. So there's so many things like this that are like hidden. And, and I think there's, um, it means that we don't really get it. There's a sort of like, and there's a process happening now where I think more people seem to be interested in autism and what it is and, and whether they have it, you know, I, heard someone the other day saying, I think all men have autism. It's like, oh, okay, there's a little bit of an exaggeration and, and a misunderstanding. And where did that come from? But it's like, we're, we're groping with this. So I thought it'd be good to have a podcast where we really got try to get clearer about what is the nature of the experience of people who are autistic and how they present in the world and how they present in their families and how they present in therapy. And, and then, Following that up, after we've spent some time on that, get into, if you're a DBT therapist, how do you bring DBT to somebody with, with, uh, who's autistic and, and, and make it work? I mean, because actually there's some real overlaps, but it's not a total overlap. So anyway, so I thought I would have a, I brought, brought somebody on as my guest who actually I worked with in the past at one point in the DBT world, I supervised her for a while. And um, so I want to introduce uh, Dr. Amara Brook. Amara is a uh, clinical psychologist, PhD psychologist, very academically oriented person who's also in practice and who has interest in, uh, in, in autism and in a lot of related topics. She's uh, um, trained as a DBT therapist. She's done CBT. She's located in the Silicon Valley, the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and, 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 and does a fair amount of psychological testing as well as private practice and therapy, including DBT-oriented work. So I just um, asked her to join me in a conversation 
that'll probably take place over the next two or three episodes. And we'll see where it goes, but, but she has a lot of expertise in this area, definitely more, more than I do. And so I thought, I just wanted to, to get a little help with this. So Amara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so Thanks. much, Charlie. It's wonderful to be here. I always enjoy talking with you and very passionate about helping people understand um, autism and how to help autistic people better. So I'm really excited to be here. Good. Hey, could, could you start by just telling us a little bit more since I gave such a sort of a thumbnail tagline sort of sketch of who you are and just tell us who you are and uh, kind of, uh, and how you got interested in this topic too. So whatever you wanna let us know about yourself. Yeah, gosh, that is such a big question. Um, so as you said, I'm a clinical psychologist. I work in the Silicon Valley area um, in California as well as serving people through telehealth and a variety of other places. Um, I, re I was originally trained as a research psychologist and I was a professor um, and I really got interested in um, clinical work more when other people in my family, it turned out, were neurodivergent and were encountering um, difficulties with systems like schools and so forth. Um, and I was frustrated that as an academic, there were a lot of um, uh, approaches to therapy and to assessment that the literature, as I sort of dived into it, showed was effective, but weren't readily available. Um, and I really wanted to do something about that. And also, I really just wanted to understand better so that I could also be a better advocate in, on the personal side for people that I care about. Mm -hmm. um, so that that kind of is what got me into being a clinician from academia. I've always been very applied in my approach of like, I want to make science help people. Like that's what really drives rather than just kind of, I do love just mind candy kind of, you know, <laughs> a good discussion, um, particularly about something that I'm very, very interested in. Um, but I really, really want to put, um, you know, our, our data into action. And I always kind of go back and forth with wanting to know, well, what does the data say? Cause I want to know that what we're doing has a likelihood of working and also, well, then how to, in this particular situation, what's most effective given all the nuances of the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, that's kind of how I got into it. Um, autism specifically, um, I had, other people who I'm close to who were diagnosed as autistic and ADHD. Um, I myself was diagnosed with ADHD in graduate school. Um, so even a long time before that, um, I don't think I fully appreciated when I was first diagnosed, how many, very many ways it affected my life. And I also um, have learned much more recently that I'm autistic, which explains all kinds of things throughout my entire history. Um, and well, I will preface by saying that it's often said one, you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. There's so much variation in mm. what autistic people look and sound and act and think like. Um, mm. It makes, from a diagnostic perspective, I do a lot of psychological testing. It is very tricky trying to figure out, um, mm. you know, many different neurodivergences. If we think of, I want to say a little bit about neurodivergence, if that's okay. 
Oh, good. I was going to I was going to ask you because you use that term pretty quickly and there might be a lot of people who don't quite know what yes, you mean. Yes, yes. I think often now these days people hear neurodivergent and they think either autistic or maybe ADHD. Um, really, neurodivergence was coined as or neurodiversity was coined as a term in I believe the 90s um, to try to just sort of build awareness and acceptance of the broad variety of differences in brains, right? So literally any difference in how somebody's brain works and how they perceive and think and feel and sense the world, all of that is neurodivergence. So we think of autism or ADHD, certainly those are forms of neurodivergence. Um, so it are learning disabilities. So is giftedness or intellectual disability. So is what we might call acquired neurodivergence or things that are a combination of an acquired and inherited, like bipolar or schizophrenia or anything. But Amara, so let, me, let me say let me, all of that is neurodivergence. It's not just autism or ADHD. So I do want to be like kind of clear what I'm talking about with that. Mm. Let me ask you. So I mentioned this to you before, but um, after decades of marriage that my wife has responded to there, she asks me a question sometimes like a simple question like hey could you could you bring me the I don't know could you bring me a, a, a butter knife and um, and and I somehow get caught over and over again wondering which of five things does she actually mean you know like my I just my brain just immediately shoots into like a little kind of like algorithm of sort of like all of a sudden there's five branches and I say, wait a minute, do you want this or do you want this? She says, Charlie, everybody would know what I mean when I uh, ask for a butter knife, but I don't, I actually, and, 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 and I think it's useful for me because when I think about things I do creatively, like mm -hmm. how do you do therapy or how do you work with a certain person? Maybe I have five ideas when someone else just has one. And so that might be valuable, but it's also cluttery. It clutters my life. Is that neuro? Is that in the category of what you're calling neurodivergent? Yes, I mean, obviously, I haven't done a comprehensive eval of you, Charlie. So no, I'm not. like put labels on it. But I mean, if your brain is working differently than these sort of neurotypical norm, like neurotypical is basically kind of how society generally expects brains to operate, right? Okay. okay. Well, let me give you an example. Um, seen so many examples of this. Um, we sort of expect like six-year-olds in elementary school, maybe first graders, to have very short attention spans and need to shift from one thing to another every 15 minutes or so to keep them interested. Mm -hmm. And we like we expect them to have to like lots of stimulation. So we put like, you know, colored things all over the classroom and we have lots of excitement and so forth, right? Right. Some kids whose brains are wired very differently, right? Maybe they want to deep dive into something for hours, mm. right? There are kids like that, lots of autistic kids like that, right? Mm. Some ADHDers mm. too. Maybe they get very overstimulated or um, even have a fight or flight type response to excessive sensory input, right? Having mm. all that clutter, colorful, lovely clutter on the walls of the classroom might be very dysregulating to them. Right. Mm. Having to shift every 50 minutes. One of one characteristic that many autistic, autistic people share is difficulty shifting from one thing to the next. It doesn't mean mm. it's impossible, but we need a little bit more like heads up that that's going to happen. 
more time to prepare ourselves, more time to kind of get our brains and, you know, a different mode and kind of move to the next thing, right? And society tends to expect people to just like chip, 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 like somebody told you to change, you change right now. And if you don't, you're being yeah. disrespectful to it. If you're talking no, about children, you're being disrespectful definitely. to adults, you're being resistant, right? We love to say that in therapy. I don't, but, you know, they hear that a lot, right? Especially in the psychodynamic yeah. world. Um, you know, th there's, there's all these interpretations of difficulty shifting, but that difficulty with shift is very, it's actually one of the diagnostic criteria for autism. And it looks very different for different people, but it's mm. a really common thing. And you can see how that can, can create a lot of issues, right? For a first grader or even for, you know, an older person who needs a little bit more heads up if the plan's going to change, right? So Charlie, can I share how like we just sort of had like a hiccup yesterday? Like we were planning this podcast and we talked yes. about it last week and you thought, oh, we're just talking about it. And then I had this right. idea in my mind and I was like, oh good, I'm going to prepare. So I like talked right. to like my best friend <laughs> and like a really trusted colleague and I was like, right. good, we have a plan. And then yesterday you're like, how about we do this? And I'm like, like <laughs> that's not what I expected. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> you know, so like I think you know, there's this this idea of expectation. How how alarmed how alarm yeah. how alarming was that for you? Like I, I would think that you'd somebody would say, Well, yeah, I was thinking I was gonna do this, but now Charlie's suggesting we do that. But you're you think it sort of got it got more amplified than that. For sure. That, yeah. For sure. It's also because yeah. I had a really busy day yesterday. And so I was fully occupied with other things until about, you know, 6 p.m. So I didn't have okay. like a lot of time to kind of retool how I was going to do that. That's um, really interesting. Also, I would say this is this speaks to the ADHD side of me, as a lot of ADHDers tend to communicate in a bit of a winding tangential type way, like not right. everybody. That's certainly right. true for me. For me to be able to write something that is coherent and it makes sense to other people or even say something that doesn't just sound like a, you know, kind of 60s stream of consciousness, like yeah. I have to plan what I'm going to say. So part of it is, um, you know, kind of the autistic, like I had this idea in my mind. And now that I know I'm autistic, it's actually really helped because I, I, I know what that feeling is like, the, <gasps> that doesn't meet my expectations. Like I, I sort of like am familiar with that and I can go, hmm. Okay, instead of just treating that as like, this is wrong, like, well, I can go, hmm, okay, like, kind of mindfully notice it, and then it's go, really, hmm, what do I want to do with this? I talked to two different people, I talked to my husband, and I called my best friend, and I was like, hey, help, help me with reality here, like, how should I be reacting to the, you know, not should, I hate shoulds, but, you know, just kind of, I'm more aware of it. And so I can be aware of like, oh yeah, shifting at the last minute, it can be hard for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, why, why am I, why am I kind of freaking out about this? Like, how do I want to handle that? Right. Like it, it's just when you know yeah. yourself better or, you know, your clients better for anyone out there who might be, you know, a therapist, you can make a lot more sense out of reactions. Right. Like I would say yeah. 10 years ago, I would have just had that reaction and been freaking out and kind of spinning and probably not been able to handle it. I wouldn't say I handle it perfectly, but I, I would have been able to make a lot less sense of it because I didn't know myself as well. Now, I, you know, the, the guy that I mentioned to you that um, thinks in movies, mm -hmm. um, that same guy, the reason he came to my attention 
and came into therapy was because he would have meltdowns at home and where, where he would lose control of his behavior. And he was six, 16 years old. And, and the way it would happen would be, he'd be on the computer, for instance, and then his mother or father would say, oh, it's time for dinner, come on into the dining room. Mm. And, and he wouldn't come, he would yeah. stay on the, and they'd say, didn't mm. you hear us? It's time for dinner. And he's yeah. like, I'm not done. And it's sort of like yeah. it would rapidly escalate until, yeah. of course, his parents are frustrated, but for him, it was beyond frustration. Right. He would start grabbing dishes that are on the counter and throw them on the ground and break oh. them. And, yeah. and that, and so it became a crisis. Right. So, I mean, I, I think that what I learned about him over time was that, yeah, it had more to do with just, you know, how do you skillfully make a transition when your brain works that way? Mm-hmm. Like, he couldn't let go of the computer right. at that point. Now, lots of people can't let go of their computers these days, but this is sort of an extreme, right? It's a degree of difficulty, right? And I think this is something where it becomes like kind of diagnostically tricky, right? To kind of say like, you know, uh, it's not that you can't shift ever, but we may need more of a heads up before shifting, right? Mm. We need a little bit more time to like, a, hey, something might be changed or even mm. a disclaimer like, this is not the final plan. We don't know what we're doing yet so that I don't like create this like idea in my head of what's going to happen that right, maybe right, turned right. out to not be, you know, that I thought it was more set than it was, right? Um, so that difficulty shifting, it looks like lots of different things. It doesn't always, I mean, I think it, I like that you pointed out that um, there was an escalation process that happened, right? And I think mm-hmm. this is really important to understand. And I have seen this so many times with, you know, with schools and families and so forth, where, and I've experienced it in my own, you know, life where there's a misunderstanding of why the person is doing what they're doing. And so there's a reaction in a way that, you know, of course, things can escalate in all kinds of situations that have nothing to do with autism, right? That's why we have half our skills in, you know, DBT that we teach, right? Like the right. stop skill, thank you very much, right? You know, because of course, we want to stop escalation. But especially when you have what we call like cross neurotype communication, this is kind of coming back to the example with you and your wife, right? Like, I don't know what her neurotype or yours is. But, you know, sometimes when we are sort of on a bit of a different wavelength um, to another person, um, they, you know, we may have more difficulty communicating kind of back and forth. There can be misinterpretations. And I, I think this is an important kind of, this kind of brings to another point that I really wanted to mention, um, is the traditional model of diagnosing thing, you know, neurodivergences in general, but autism in particular, what was what we call the medical or deficit model, right? Like the norm mm-hmm. is to be able to do these things, to be able to make eye contact and read between the lines in terms of nonverbal communication and, you know, shift quickly when somebody asks you to and, you know, not be too sensitive to certain things and, Mm -hmm. you know, be interested in a variety of different things, preferably lots of social nonsense. Sorry, that's my... My ADHD and my autism, my autism thing's nonsense and my ADHD says it. So anyway, (laughs) (laughs) and then, you know, there's the, um, you know, kind of the difficulty shifting, right? Like all these different things um, are are, the DSM, like we looked at how we have to diagnose and I hate that I have to, but we all have to follow the ICD or the DSM or whatever more diagnosing. It's like, persistent deficit in this and, you know, sh- you know, shortcoming in that and blah, blah, blah. It's all negative, you know, deficit. Right. Right, right, right. 
the neurodiversity perspective is more, there's a difference, right? We're way more focused on certain things, what we call our special interests, or, you know, we, you know, maybe have more of a need for, you know, consistency or routine, right? Rather than like a, you know, being rigid, right? Like, so there's a way to kind of reframe these things in a way that mm. isn't so negative. And one way to think about this is, this is just a difference from like, the DSM deficits are in comparison to the kind of neurotypical norm, right? And mm. you get this sort of difficulties in communication when people are trying to communicate across, um, you know, people of one neurotype and people of a different neurotype, right? So they've actually done this really, my, my nerd's going to come out here because I got to describe the study. It's so exciting. There is, um, Damian Milton did this study um, where they wanted to see, okay, you know, we think that what we've always said is that autistic people aren't good at communicating, right? That's kind of deficits in communication is like. Right, 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 right. So they did the study where they said, okay, well, let's have autistic people and non-autistic people. And we're going to have them play a game of telephone where we like, essentially like transmit, you know, what transmit a message, right? And see how accurately it comes out the other end. Right, right. Okay? Now, what you would think based on the DSM model is that the, you know, non-autistic people would do a great job to the extent that anyone does a great job at telephone, but they would do the best job at telephone, right? And then the autistic people would do a terrible job because they're terrible communicators, right? Not so. What they found is that the autistic, all autistic group did okay the all non-autistic group did okay, equally well, right? Within their groups. Mm -hmm. The group that had trouble was the mixed neurotype group where you had autistic and non-autistic people trying to transmit this message across neurotypes. That group did much worse than, you know, within each neurotype, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So a better analogy, a lot of people have suggested is more like speaking a different language, right? You know, if you have a group of French speakers and a group of English speakers who don't speak each other's language, probably they're going to do just as well as at telephone within the French group or within the English group, right? But when you get them together trying to transmit that message, you're going to have difficulties, right? So that's been dubbed kind of the double empathy problem, the idea that it's not that autistic people are you know, have deficits per se in communication. Mm -hmm. They just have different ways of communication, mm -hmm. right? So if you mm -hmm. see that in real life, it might be like, you know, autistic people tend to communicate directly and they tend to kind of say what they actually mean. And they tend to like literally actually mean, and they tend to take other people's statements as literally what they're actually saying, right? Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. is okay. If, both people are being direct and literal, right? But if one mm -hmm. person is sending subtle nonverbal signals, you know, trying to be, to be subtle and polite or something, and the other person is totally missing those, right? Or they're interpreting in a different way, then you get communication issues, right? And that happens all the time in, you know, real world. You know, it's, it reminds me of, I've, I've spent some time in the past with people who are deaf or hard of hearing. And mm -hmm. and when it's similar, like if you see people who are deaf and hard of hearing in a grocery store mm -hmm. and, they, um, and they're trying to communicate with people who hear normally, I mean, then, and it gets very complicated. They're trying to get some point across and they're trying to understand the point. And mm -hmm. it's, and you, 
But if you see like a whole group of kids come in that are deaf or hard of hearing and they come into the grocery store, they communicate with each other all over the store constantly and from a distance because they use sign language sometimes. And so you can just see there's two different communities going on. It's sort of obvious with that group. It isn't so obvious. So let me ask you a clinical question here, but maybe this may be jumping ahead. But with your experience in the DBT world, it makes me think. What if you have somebody who has, who's autistic and they're in your DBT skills group and there's only one person like that, maybe two people like that, and the rest of the group are neurotypical? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be better if it was possible for the person to be in, the, in, a, uh, in an all autistic group and with an autistic group leader uh, because the communication will go so much better I mean, I'm just wondering how many times there are breakdowns that don't have, don't even get recognized in a DBT skills group or other group therapies. Right. I, I think that um, there's a couple of questions that it, it like sort of together there. So maybe I could speak to kind of my view on both of them. Um, I've certainly been in situations like that where I'm co-leading um, with a non-autistic group leader and, you know, some autistic members of a group um, or people with other sort of neurodivergences need something that's different. Um, So I think the two questions I'm hearing is, is it better if autistic people have their own groups that's tailored for them? That's one question. Um, I think it, I'm not sure. I mean, I would think it could be because there'd be a shared common experience um, and we could really tailor the way the material is presented in a way that really works better for autistic folks. Okay. I will say though, like not all autistic folks are gonna have the same needs, right? And a lot mm-hmm. of DBT is like, that might work well in a large hospital system, but I'm even thinking like when I worked at some major VA medical centers, we would often have two DBT groups, right? Maybe like, you know, just two days or days of the week or a minute. Right. Right. And I'm right. like, what kind of setting is going to be able to have a separate group? Yeah. Like it's going to have yeah. enough autistic people who are at the same stage of DBT or whatever to have like a separate group. So just in terms of practicality, I'm kind of wondering how yeah, that's, that can really no, that's happen. A- that's I, I I know that that's a practical problem that, that's right, right. that logistical problem but I, right. that I and just maybe I'm getting caught up in the weeds but I there's no 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 um, you know also some people so I'll give you an example like you know I'm an autistic ADHD or I am highly verbal though like I find it much I actually find communicating over the phone and not having to deal with nonverbal visual communication mm. much much easier. Mm. Um, mm. I find it actually really, no offense, I love talking to you, Charlie, but compared to last week when we talked over the phone, I find looking at you and processing that much more distracting than uh-huh. only hearing your voice, right? Uh-huh. Some uh-huh. people do better if they only have kind of one channel of communication. So I have other autistic folks I know who hate phone communication. They are highly visual, like they don't necessarily get, you know, they nonverbals are different and so forth, but they just, just the audio doesn't work well for them, right? Mm. So even if we say like, okay, well, let's optimize this for autistic people, we might be able to do some things that are better. But again, it comes down to sort of individual neurodivergence. How does this person, you mm. know, just communicate, right? Like right. Some, yeah, people, yeah, yeah. some people prefer to communicate in writing, and that could be a really important accommodation for some autistic folks who 
um, find written communication much easier than verbal communication. I probably wouldn't be one of those folks because I just like communicating verbally. Um, and I know I'm not alone in that. Mm. So anyway, I, I want to come back to your question though. Is it helpful to have a group leader or a therapist or something who yeah. loves the same neurotype or at least enough that they sort of get you better? I think a hundred percent. Yes. And that's one reason that it's really, I mean, I, I think, and I know that other people involved in this kind of movement to kind of help DBT be more accommodating for, um, you know, autistic and ADHD years and, you know, folks with other neurodivergences that maybe weren't the initial DBT population, um, is that it is really, really helpful to have a therapist from a similar, you know, neurotype. That said, I don't want like anybody listening who's isn't, you know, of a particular neurotype to go, okay, well, that's it. I'm just can never work with those people because they have to have a therapist of their own, you know, neurotype. I, I don't think that that's accurate. Um, it just can be very helpful though. Like an autistic therapist is probably going to have an easier time communicating with autistic clients compared to a, you know, non-autistic therapist. And that's great if that's possible, but all the rest of us can do, I should say us, I guess, because I'm autistic, but, um, you know, all, everyone else can also be a lot more effective with autistic clients just by understanding some things, you know, about what really, you know, what does that really look like? Um, I think, could I say something a little bit about stereotypes of autism, Charlie? Sure, go ahead. So I think when a lot of people think of, you know, autism stereotypically, they think of a young white, maybe less verbal, maybe flapping or spinning boy, right? That's kind of Or maybe Sheldon on Big Bang Theory or Rain Man, you know, there are like certain stereotypes that we have. Right. That's right. There are a lot of groups that have gone underdiagnosed and underrecognized and mm. that, and it often doesn't look anything like the stereotype. So there's a lot of discussion in the um, autism community about people who were assigned female at birth um, or maybe currently female. There's also a much higher rate of gender divergence among autistic people. But anyway, people who were assigned female at birth, socialized female, very underdiagnosed, right? Um, girls are socialized in a lot of ways that helps hide autistic characteristics. Girls mask their camouflage or autistic characteristics a say, lot. Say more about this about girls and, and what, what, why would they be underrecognized? They mask more than the right. boys will mask. Why well, they... first of all, more um, boys were more recognized and were the samples in the initial studies because people thought you know that autistic is like a boy thing, just like they thought ADHD was a boy thing back in the day. It's a good reason I didn't get diagnosed with anything when I was little because. I don't know that any girls were getting diagnosed with autism or ADHD and that long ago, you know, right. we just right. didn't associate right. those things. Right. Um, I would say my behavior was exactly like a hyperactive ADHD boy with an additional layer of not understanding social situations, but nobody, you know, saw it that way because, you know, I was, I had blonde hair that was long and, you know, I was a little girl, right? Right, right, right. Um, but girls are also really heavily socialized to be polite and to be deferential 
and being socially savvy and smooth is more traditionally more emphasized in girls socialization um you know making other people comfortable is traditionally more emphasized in girls right, socialization right. um you know sucking it up and sacrificing for other people i'm not saying i agree with any of this but is traditionally more emphasized in girls socialization right and right. all of these things in addition to perhaps some biological things um you know has and the stereotype that autistic autism is a boy thing has really led to under identification of autism in girls and women um for example some of the characteristics like repetitive behaviors which we might think of things like flapping or spinning or you know mm -hmm. making certain you know sounds repetitively with like an autistic boy and girls might do those things do too but girls, although I don't have a chair right now, they might also like twirl their hair. They might discover like, oh, people give me a hard time if I, and people are much more on girls about social behaviors, right? So they may learn very early, people give me a hard time if I, you know, spin or if I flap, but if I like pick at my nails or I, you know, twirl my hair or hmm. I do like a repetitive counting tapping thing, you know, nobody notices and it's fine. I get my needs met, right? So there's, they're no less autistic. They're just doing less obvious behaviors. But, right? but that, so, so let me ask you about this because that's, so you're saying basically society um, and conventional norms mm -hmm. and the ways, the way people treat girls and what they expect of girls, socialize girls into more, less, less obvious autistic patterns or something yep. like that right yep. but, but you're saying that they maintain their autism internally yes it isn't like they've they've had such good training yep. it's like a like the world right. as a skills training device yep. is doesn't train them out of their autism yeah could you right. say a little more about that so that and and I, and I maybe this is linked in my mind to something that's left over from the earlier part of our conversation when you said that um you didn't really recognize yourself as autistic until much later in life. And I've heard that from other people. And right. so I'm curious about that. Like you can live your life for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and not know that you're right. autistic. And then you discover you're autistic. How does that work? How does that work? And how is it that you can miss it for so long? And then how, how is it that you discover it? That's such a big question. Um, so let me go back to something we were talking about before, just because I don't want to drop the point of under-identified groups. Sure, um, oh, sure. And then I'll come back to how to what it's like, how is it possible that you don't know you're autistic? Believe me, it's not, you don't, you know you're different. You just come up with other narratives. That's the short answer. They're okay. usually okay. more harmful. But um, so there's, you know, girls under-identified, highly verbal people under-identified, because the stereotype is that autistic people don't talk as much. Um, higher IQ people under-identified. A lot of the initial samples with some of our diagnostic instruments were with, you know, people with, you know, average to below average IQ. Um, ethnic minorities under-identified. Older people under-identified because lots of people are trained only to diagnose children. Mm. People with co-occurring ADHD, well, before the current DSM, you were not even allowed to diagnose both autism and ADHD. Now we know that about, I may not be quite correct with these numbers, but I want to give an idea of the magnitude of it. 
that at least 70 to 80% of autistic folks meet criteria for ADHD. Mm. It's a smaller percentage with ADHD. I think it's something like, I don't know exactly, 10 to 30% or something of people with ADHD meet criteria for autism. Mm. But there's a lot of overlap that wasn't even allowed to be recognized until 2013 when DSM-5 came out, right? And there's characteristics like being really talkative, being impulsive, like having difficulty maintaining routines that can like make it really hard to figure out that differential diagnosis. And I mm. to this day have lots of interesting conversations about that with other diagnosticians. People who are extroverted are going to be underdiagnosed because we think of, you know, autistic people as just, you know, rocking by themselves in a corner, staring at a book about trains or something, right? Um, people whose interests are more mainstream, a lot of girls, but not only girls, interests seem to be a lot more mainstream, like they're super into animals, they're super into fashion or makeup or something that's more typical. And nobody thinks that it's just the intensity of that interest is different. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and people who obviously have been trained to really cover up their autistic characteristics um, unfortunately, usually because of a lot of emphasis that their life will be really bad if they still show these characteristics, um, are going to be harder to diagnose, right? So that's what we call like masking. Um, mm. So I just wanted to highlight that there are, besides people assigned female at birth, there's a lot of different groups that have been really underdiagnosed. And that's part mm. of why we're learning a lot more about those groups. So you asked about how is it possible to not get diagnosed until adulthood and to not realize that you, you know, that, that, that's, something's missing. I think almost everybody who gets diagnosed has for a long time realized that something was different, right? Mm. So when I got like victimized and ostracized by other children, you know, from preschool on, like I definitely knew there was some problem with that, but autism wasn't even a narrative, right? Like it wasn't mm. even available, right? Mm. Um, you know, another kid to a neighbor kid when I was in preschool talked me into putting jalapeno juice in my eye and I had to go to the emergency room mm, mm. like I don't know how I mean I was so naive like why did I do that like I you know that was a mystery that was like one of those stories that like my you know parents have like just laughed about like you know like we have these stories you know and a lot of times they're pretty traumatic but we don't have like a narrative that makes any sense of them. Like, how did I not recognize that that person didn't have good intentions? Right, right. right? Of when all the kids in elementary school isolated and ostracized me until I met one other really awesome neurodivergent kid in like fourth grade, who's still my best friend, um, you know, there, there was definitely something going on there, right? Oh. You know, when I was like hiding on the bus just with my book, like up in front of my head reading, and like hoping all the kids would leave me alone, right? Like there, there was all kinds of, you know, there were always differences, right? But we don't have narratives, right? Most of the time people are developing, unfortunately, usually more harmful narratives, like that it's a personal failing, right? That's a pretty common one. We develop a lot of shame, a lot, a lot of shame, speaking of DBT connections, right? Yeah. About like, you know, if I allow anybody to see this, this part of me, you know, they won't yeah. like me and you know i mean shame is all about fear of what's going to happen if people know the real you right so right. for carrying around masking and things only go well when we mask you know at least when it for among neurotypical people um you know that that can 
lead to a lot of a lot a lot of shame but i think it's just this narrative wasn't you know autism wasn't even something that was even known you know for people of my demographic when i was you know little but even as an adult you know being highly verbal you know being bright um you know having very strong adhd that had already been identified um I mean, a lot of people get misdiagnosed as well, especially like, um, you know, they get diagnosed with all kinds of other things. Um, well, what what about the overlap? I mean, is there, is there a, I mean, you've worked with DBT, you've worked with autism. Is there mm -hmm. a, is there some relationship you see between borderline personality and autism that, that is um, more, th more than just chance? So, that, I mean, if you look at sort of characteristics, there are some, uh, there's, if we looked at that as sort of like a Venn diagram, you could say there's some aspects that overlap. I would say they're definitely not the same thing. Um, many, many women are um, previously diagnosed with borderline personality and later find out they're autistic because borderline personality has been you know seen as well if you're female and you are prone to strong emotional reactions or you have big you know reactions to small things i put that in air quotes um that other people don't understand um you have relationship difficulties you may be um have some communication differences that treatment providers find challenging you know slap borderline personality right like that's seen as you know that's kind of what people associate with women um and so there's a lot of misdiagnosis with borderline personality there's a lot of misdiagnosis with uh bipolar when people don't stick to the duration criteria for bipolar so if somebody has you know is reacting to a lot of things um and people are kind of using a sort of ultra rapid cycling kind of you know, criterion without checking that they've ever had in, you know, four to seven day episode, you get a lot of misdiagnosis with bipolar, of course, a lot of depression and anxiety, because those are things that just result from being, unfortunately, from being neurodivergent and sort of a world that's not really designed for you. Uh, a lot of social anxiety, right? A lot of women get social anxiety um, or diagnosed with social anxiety. Um, so there's a lot of, and you're wondering about overlap between BPD and autism. Yes, um, folks with borderline personality tend to react, be sensitive and react really strongly to certain types of things. I think what they react to often is different than what autistic people are reacting to, but since other people have no idea what either group is reacting to, they may not be very good at distinguishing between those. Right, um, right. For borderline personality, there does tend to be, um, you know, relational things like any sort of clue to like a relational problem tends to be a common, you know, kind of trigger, so to speak. Um, that also can be true though for autistic and ADHD years. There's actually somebody who's, I don't quite, agree with this term, but there's somebody who's coined the term rejection sensitive dysphoria, mm -hmm. which 
they think mostly applies to people with ADHD, I think equally applies to people who are autistic. I mean, and also obviously that's very similar to the rejection sensitivity that we know that borderline, you know, personality folks experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think for all of those groups comes from experience of being, you know, rejected and having to hide their true selves and, and stuff like that. So I think that's a pretty significant overlap. Um, you know, this, this sort of exquisite sensitivity, I think with borderline, it tends to be more to relational things for autism. It tends to be to a lot of sensory things, but like I said, a lot of other people don't recognize those sensory things. So whether they can distinguish between those, you know, reasons that somebody is having a big reaction is, you know, a whole different question. You know, I wonder, I, I'm curious if you could say more about the sensory part of this. It's sort of, um, of what you've talked about so far, the people listening to this often are people who know something about DBT, they know something about borderline, they know yeah. something about, you know, certainly lots of other things. But, um, but one thing that comes across as a little different, it seems like, is that the sensory experiences that people, I mean, some of the emotional experiences, some of the rejection experiences, some of the experiences of being invalidated in the world, some yeah. of the interpersonal problems, some yeah. of the emotional regulation problems might overlap a lot, but it seems like there's a sensory area where yeah. people are really wired differently for how their sensory system works in the environment uh, when, when, they're, when, uh, when they're autistic. I wonder if you could yeah. say about something about that. Right. Well, first of all, there are some people who are autistic and are have borderline personality disorder. That can both be true. Um, that's yeah. certainly not universally true. Um, there are, as I said, some similarities, and as you pointed out, you know, the invalidation and all of that. Um, but there are also, um, there are also definitely differences. So I think the sensory aspect is, I mean, sensory differences, it's kind of ironic. They weren't even in the diagnostic criteria until the current DSM. It was sort of mentioned, I think, in the previous one as something that might happen. But now I think most people think of these sensory, the difference of being exquisitely sensitive and experience and having sensory differences and experiencing the world just affects everything. Um, and, you know, there's been more, more kind of uh, MRI type studies that have showed that autistic folks have hyper-connected brains that are like sort of getting overwhelmed with sort of the amount of sensory input in the world. Um, mm. And those sensory differences are very there are other groups that also have sensory differences. For example, some ADHDers have sensory differences, um, but it, with autism, people tend to have either hypersensitivity, which is like they are people might imagine like somebody putting their hands over their ears because of a loud noise, or you know having difficulties with textures. Um, you know, issues with food textures contribute pretty heavily to things like uh, avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder, which is highly overlaps quite a bit with autism. Mm. Uh, mm. Not to say that all autistic people have ARFID, but are, a lot of folks with ARFID um, tend to be, be autistic. Um, there's a lot of, you know, sensory sensitivities to visual stuff being very dysregulated by visual clutter um i tend to be very sensitive to light like i can't sleep if there's even the slightest amount of light and light will very quickly wake me up if i am asleep like very sensitive to that mm. um there can be sensitivity to clothing textures so like 
a lot of people like very picky in terms of, you know, wearing comfortable clothing. Like I always throughout my life have had like my feet are extremely sensitive. So I can only really wear really pretty comfortable shoes, which is like not aligned with most of what people expect from women, to be honest. Um, thank goodness there's some better options these days that are also accepted. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, clothing tags, very bothersome to a lot of people who have like texture issues. Um, some people just can't stand synthetic clothing. Some people can't stand wool. Some people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. There's a lot of sensory hypo hypersensitivities. I think the other part that people don't recognize as much though, is a lot of autistic people also usually the same people, sometimes different people have hypo sensitivities where they have difficulty sensing certain things. Like they need a more intense flavor to be able to, you know, taste something or to be able to get an appropriate level of taste. They need to, um, you know, they like physical touch. Maybe they need more intense pressure or touch um, to be able to kind of, you know, register, um, touch appropriately. Maybe they need, you know, more uh, movement to be able to like register movement appropriately. A lot of autistic people have difficulties with what we call interest. We think of, you know, the five senses, right? But there's also things like position of our body in space, um, movement of our body, signals mm -hmm. from inside our body, which we call interoception. A lot of autistic folks have difficulty with interoception, like either or just differences, like not noticing they're hungry or being exquisitely, exquisitely sensitive to hunger, mm. um, not noticing that they need to go to the bathroom until they really need to go to the bathroom. Um, this really is hugely relevant to DBT and the way we train emotion recognition. A lot of autistic folks. Um, have difficulty recognizing what they're feeling or um, alexithymia, which I was always trained in traditional um, clinical world was mostly a result of severe trauma. But actually, a lot of autistic folks have alexithymia and have a really hard time identifying what emotions they're feeling. And a lot, and often in DBT, we'll go, okay, well then notice what's happening in your body and like, where do you feel that in your body and, and so forth. But if you have um, interoception differences, you may be getting either misfiring signals from various parts of your body. That's that very interesting. As they would for a, um, for a, um, excuse me, I'm sorry about that. Stop. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. You're getting that's all right. Um, all right. Now I've got to find my Zoom. You're getting app. interrupted. Yes, I apologize. Um, I didn't plan well in terms of shutting off that notification. Um, that's all right. But anyway, like, you know, so if we're getting mis different types of signals from inside our bodies or not recognizing signals, there can be things that a therapist asks somebody to do in terms of notice this, notice that that or they think or the therapist thinks the signal means something that it doesn't mean for that person right it's real those sensory differences are really powerful and a lot of the other things that follow that we see as sort of autistic behavior the sensory stuff is kind of invisible until you somebody somebody with their hands over their ears or you get a lot of people that are very sensory seeking right so they're looking for like they want it they need to like get sensory input by like rubbing their fingers on something that's sort of a subtle one or rocking or flapping right. or you know picking or 
um, you know, using having heavy weight, getting deep hugs, right? You get some autistic kids who nobody associates this behavior really with autism who just want to give everyone a really deep hug and they want everyone to squish them, right? That's like a sensory seeking behavior. You get, mm. you know, uh, people who like always want to be spinning in their chair. Like I've seen a lot of adults, they just spend kind of all day, like this is a subtle thing they do is just kind of move back and forth in their chair. You know, you get kids who need to do a lot of swinging, hanging upside down on the playground, like right. you know, things like that, right? So that sensory stuff affects a lot. And it, it definitely helps drive some of those, like the repetitive behaviors, which is also another autistic criteria. But like I said, could be sort of stereotypical things like rocking or flapping, or it could be something very subtle that somebody does to get sensory input that- You, you know, know, Amara, I, I think that-, that what you're bringing up now is something that um, it's like, there's a child agency in my town. It, it's DBT oriented, but it's also the, the CEO of it and head clinician is a special, is a sort of a world expert in sensory modulation, sensory yeah. processing. And so all of the kids that come into that program get a sensory profile when they come in, they go through a whole rigmarole yeah. of, to really identify all the things you're talking about, yeah. all the things about both their five senses, the interoception, and sort of what's unique about this kid. Why, why is this kid freak out on a floor and this one freaks out yeah. on a carpet and this one right. freaks out in the blue room and this one freaks out in the dim yeah. room and sort of all of these things become very much part of treatment. But mm -hmm. it seems like we don't do that with adults. I mean, uh, now that I think about it, and because I think about DBT, you know, in the DBT world, yeah, there's some paying of attention to sensory processing a little bit, like self-soothing activities and 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 asking yourself where you feel a certain emotion in your body or things like that. But there's not really very much of what you're talking about. It's kind of like the, uh, and I just I wonder what we're missing in lots of people and not just the autistic people that, that are in the program, but right. But generally a, a lot of people, we just, unless, we, unless you also are accompanied by learning some sort of sensory experiencing therapy yep. of some kind. But I, I think we must yeah. miss, a, miss a lot of that. For um, sure. And people learn to hide it eventually, right? People get traumatized by other people's reactions to their stimming, you know, um, I think that really speaks to, and I just wanted to mention this because, um, you know, today kind of what we would call the social model of disability, um, which in the traditional model is, you know, there's a correct way to be um, and that is able to do all these things. That's also that kind of perspective is also known as ableism, right? Like that you should be able to do all these things in this way. Right. There can be ableism in DBT when it's not intended because we sort of just have expectations based on the average person, right? Um, well, the idea of the social model of disability is that people are not disabled by their inherent characteristics. They're disabled by a mismatch between what is being asked or expected <laughs> of them and their abilities, right? Mm. So for example, if you think about somebody who's hypersensitive to noise, they may be very disabled in certain environments that are loud or dysregulating. This happens for a lot of children in school because mm. they go to into an elementary school or high school, oh, they're so loud, right? Really mm. hard for auditory hypersensitivity. Um, but if they're in a quiet environment, they may not be disabled at all, right? Somebody mm. in a wheelchair, may, I mean, they, they might not be able to stand up, but they may be able to pretty much do everything if they're appropriately accommodated. But if they're in a place that doesn't have ramps or lifts or things like that, then 
you know, mm -hmm. they may have a lot more difficulty, right? And that I think is so important because by accommodating, if we recognize better what people's needs are and we accommodate those needs, they're much less disabled in that environment. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of what neurodiversity movement is trying to push for is let's accommodate better so that people are not experiencing as much disability and so they can access all these wonderful things that um you know that that other people can access mm -hmm. right and i think when if we think about it that way in terms of you know dbt you know what expectations do we have we need to kind of check whether this is an expectation that is reasonable for this person and if not then what do i need to accommodate about that expectation so that they are able to access the care that they need. And I think I think DBT is tends to be, I think for good reason, but it's uh, tends to be biased towards emphasizing what goes on with the emotion regulation system. So that yes. we list, so we listen carefully for people's emotions. We have ways of talking about emotions. We have you know eleven different emotions with all kinds of details about them in the skills manual, yeah. and we go into that all the time. We don't do that at all about sensory experience and certain other maybe kinds of internal experience. So I imagine the person with autism that's sitting in a DBT program sometimes just feels like, well, like in the rest of the world, that's just an unrecognized part of myself. The fact that I see things visually different than everyone else, that I can't stand the lights in this room, or that there's too many people talking at once, right. uh, or, or that I didn't expect this to happen this way, and now I'm really thrown by it but I'm right. supposed to suppress my reactions to all of these things yep. so I can act like other normal people, whatever yep. that is. And so, so it's really um, like a hidden area of uh, the invisibility part of it that I started yep. with is sort of recognizing that people are invisible and they're, and they're working very hard automatically to suppress a lot of their actual experience. Yep. And of course, DBT is supposed to be a model where we want to validate people's actual yep. experience. But if we don't hear it and we don't see it, we don't look for it. Yeah. We must we must miss quite a bit, especially in this group of people. Oh, absolutely. And, and autistic people who have gotten to adulthood without being recognized as autistic usually have gotten very good at masking their autistic characteristics. And <laughs> you know, even when we do an assessment and somebody comes in and they're curious whether they're autistic, it is hard for people to change, you know, what they've learned to do. But it's really problematic because it contributes to a lot of shame to have to to mask all the time and if you're even in dbt and then you're having to sort of mask and hide um yeah i i'm not sure how are we doing in terms of time charlie i didn't well we have I, I was just looking at that myself we have to stop within a minute or two so we're uh, we okay i will not launch up. into another story at the moment then. no don't but, but, um, hold it we can launch into it next time because we'll okay. continue we'll continue this conversation and see where we take it next yeah. time but, um but but just you know I, I think that's such an important point if we do understand autistic people better and the full you know, range of experiences. And this isn't true just for autistic people, but anybody who's, you know, neurodivergence is different than maybe the particular population that DBT was designed for. You know, it can be a very flexible treatment, but if we sort of look at it like a cookbook that we're just applying rigidly and we have all of these clients must be able to do this in exactly this way, kind of mm -hmm. expectations, and then we're making negative interpretations of, anything else that they do, 
we're not making it accessible, but it, we can make it accessible. I think it's flexible enough to accommodate that. And Charlie, I think you've mentioned that, you know, so many times in my experience working with you, even before we ever had a conversation about autism. Yeah. Um, that, and I know that comes up for adapting DBT for, you know, other diverse populations as well, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so look, um, I think just to just to say to this to every, anyone who's listening, so Amara and I are each going to get a chance to listen to this and think more about what we have talked about, where we want to go further with this conversation. So we will have, we'll announce, I'll, I'll be announcing soon when we have our next, when the next podcast will be posted, but we'll have a, we'll, we'll continue this conversation. And, I, and anyone who hears this, feel free to contact me and let me know your questions and your comments about it because that guides us as well. And so if I learn something from you, you can either do that by sending it to me directly by email, c.robert.swenson at gmail.com or go to my website, charlieswenson.com and you can send me an email through the website or where you listen to your podcast, <clears throat> you could leave a comment. So there's various ways to try to get some information into me and I can also get it to Amara when I get it so that we can you know include that in in the conversation so feel free I hope this was useful um and Amara thank you so much for having this conversation with me you've definitely expanded my own internal horizons about this topic because I'm just learning about it more and more so thank you thank you so much Charlie so happy to be here okay take good care you too bye bye Bye-bye.